Mac, say some words for a second. I really hate the book The Dead by James Joyce. Oh, f*** me! Hey there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone-cold fact since 1986. This episode's fact, Star Trek IV, Save the Whales, is the best Star Trek movie ever made. I feel I need to point out that Save the Whales is not the actual title. Mac made that mistake when she was trying to find this movie to watch. To be fair, I knew it wasn't the actual title, but I was Googling it to buy it so that I could watch it. And I just kept Googling Star Trek Save the Whales. And Google would be like, what do you mean? Do you want to go to savethewhales.com? And I'm like, no, I want Star Trek Save the Whales. You know what I'm talking about. You really think at this point that Google would learn that Star Trek 4 is definitely called Save the Whales. So eventually I sullenly typed in The Voyage Home and downloaded it that way. Thanks, Amazon. Let's start with some context here. This is Star Trek IV. There have been three other Star Trek movies before this. Two of them were not good. Yeah, from what I'm understanding, all of the even ones are pretty great, and all of the odd ones are the worst. At least this is true from Star Trek's 1 to 8. And then Generations was not very good. First Contact was the best TNG movie. Insurrection was not terrible and basically just an episode of the show, and we don't talk about Nemesis. Star Trek IV involves the original cast, Captain Kirk et al. I have watched two episodes of the original series, and one of them was Pond Far. I grew up with Next Gen. Uh, I also went on a Deep Space Nine binge a couple of years ago that cemented my love for that one. But otherwise, that's most of my Star Trekness. Mac, you watched a lot of it sort of as a kid, right? Yeah, my dad really liked all Star Trek, so he went through the original series, he went through the next gen, he went through Deep Space Nine, and I would sit in the room while it was technically on in the background, but as most preteens and teenagers probably do, uh, I was like, well, that's kind of lame, my dad's watching it, so mostly I ignored it and just talked to him and played on my laptop. So you sort of subconsciously absorbed Star Trek then? Yeah, basically. Kit, you just blow us out all of the goddamn water. I, I need to point out that uh, my mother was a fan of the original series when it was on the air, but I was raised on track. I've been watching Star Trek since as far back as my memory goes. So I have like a horrific retainer slurping encyclopedic knowledge of Trek now. <laughs> I can't help it. So in case you ever wondered whether or not Kit was a huge f***ing nerd. Look, we do a podcast about Gemma and the holograms. Of course I'm a huge f***ing nerd. Let's give a brief recap of the other Star Treks, because Star Trek IV technically ends like a story trilogy. Star Trek IV is directly in sequence with Star Trek II and III. Star Trek I is really bad and mostly slow pans. You don't need to know anything about what happened in that movie. Everyone just pretends it didn't exist. Star Trek II Wrath of Khan is possibly most notable as the movie that killed Spock. And then Star Trek III, The Search for Spock is the movie where they immediately undo that and bring him back to life. I decided to watch Star Treks 2 and 3 in preparation for watching Star Trek 4. Kit warned me repeatedly not to watch Star Trek 3, and I did anyway, and then I yelled at her on Twitter about it. She was angrily texting me throughout the entire thing. Space doors! You couldn't- come on, you came up with Jeffrey's tubes and you can't come up with any better word than space doors? 
There's an entire tension moment in that movie where they're just backing up into a pair of closed space doors. Usually if you're making a dramatic escape, you do it facing the way you're going. What you need to know about what happened in the previous movies is that uh, Spock died, and then they found out that Spock had, before he died, put his soul, his Katra, into McCoy. Why McCoy? I don't know. Scotty was right there, and McCoy hates Spock's guts. But here we are. And then they shot his dead body onto this thing they created in Wrath of Khan called the Genesis Planet. They went back to the Genesis Planet, retrieved his body. Kirk's son got fridged for, like, no reason. Christopher Lloyd was a Klingon. And then they leave the Genesis Planet with Spock's body and Spock's brain inside of McCoy's brain. So they've got two Spock halves and they go back to Vulcan and glue the two Spock halves into one whole Spock. Anyway, in the process, the Enterprise got blowed up and they had to steal a Klingon bird of prey. That belonged to Christopher Lloyd. They also were not supposed to go back to the Genesis planet, so they stole the Enterprise. And then they blew up the Enterprise, so they're in, like, super trouble. Star Trek Three makes a whole lot of no sense and undoes a lot of the interesting thematic and dramatic moments that the second one creates. Up to and including bringing Spock back to life. Also, there was a Lady Vulcan there. Yeah, that's Lieutenant Savick. She was played by Kirstie Alley in, in 2 and then by Robin Curtis in 3 and 4. Oh, that explains that. It's not just that you're bad at faces. That's a completely different actress. My first note of this movie is, so after all that bullshit, here we are in Star Trek 4. This is also the second movie that Leonard Nimoy directed? Yeah, he's actually capable of directing a good movie. Unlike certain other actors who we will not name. Shatner. So let's start off with some weird sound in space. It's some kind of probe in the neutral zone. Yep, we open on a tube in space. And basically, if you call this Save the Whales, you kind of can tell the noise that it's making is a whale noise. Yeah, but it's supposed to be a big mystery, so let's just pretend it's a big mystery. A ship comes across the tube in space. This is the Saratoga, the captain of which holds the distinction of being the first female captain portrayed on screen in Star Trek. If there's one thing that I really like about watching these movies is that it really hits home how much they were devoted to, if not making the main important characters diverse, at least filling that in in sort of the background. Whenever they do a shot of Starfleet, it has a ton of women in it, tons of people of color. As much as I love Star Wars, I feel like I didn't get on screen until Force Awakens. It's just really nice to see here. Also, this is apparently the movie where they said, screw it, let's just make a whole bunch of aliens. Yeah, there's like so many background aliens in this. And part of this is because we see the Federation Council Chamber for, I think, the first time, really. Yeah, because as soon as the ship runs across this probe, we switch to the Council as they're talking about James T. Kirk, renegade and terrorist. Yep, it's now time for the 15 minutes of this movie spent wrapping up all the nonsense from the last movie. Yeah, we have some dramatic flashbacks to what happened in the other movie. They are passing off footage from the last movie as surveillance video from the Enterprise, complete with an exterior shot of the Enterprise blowing up. The Enterprise's computer has an eye for the dramatic. At this point, since I hadn't watched the previous videos, I was like, I have no idea what's going on, but I'm fine. I mean, it's not gonna matter here in a couple of minutes. Spock's dad comes in to, like, explain the movie to a Klingon who says that the Genesis Project was a direct act of aggression against the Klingon. And he's like, no, no, let me read you the outline for these other movies. And then the Klingon ambassador dramatically proclaims, there shall be no peace as long as Kirk lives. And I want to point out that two movies later, Kirk directly enters peace talks with the Klingons. 
Rad. There's an old Vulcan saying, only Nixon could go to China. What? That's a real line in the movie. Okay, all right. So, turns out that Admiral Kirk, he was made an admiral at some point, don't worry about it, has been charged with nine violations of Starfleet regulations. Just nine? Just, I feel like there should be more. And not to mention, as this Klingon is like, there shall be no peace as long as Kirk lives. I keep thinking to myself, like, how are we going to make this time travel for the whales? How does this scene connect to that in the slightest? It doesn't. There's just certain things that they have to take care of before they can get to time travel for whales. Because the last movie made so little sense that they actually have to square away all the sense it didn't make before it can get to, haha, planet of the hats, let's get some whales. Meanwhile, on Vulcan, Kirk's log says that they've been there for three months. They were still wearing the exact same clothes they arrived in because I guess the Vulcans are not willing to lend people laundry. As a little jokey joke, Kirk says that uh, they've decided to christen their stolen Klingon bird of prey, the HMS Bounty. Get it? Anyway, there's a lot of Vulcans in silly hats. They look like half-melted lipstick tubes. Yeah, there's a bunch of Vulcan engineers fixing up the ship in silly hats. It's good. The crew all unanimously agrees that they're going to return to Earth to be court-martialed because they figure, okay, we brought Spock back to life. We'd achieved what we wanted to. Now let's face some actual consequences for our actions. Now let's head back to Earth and, and sit around waiting for our, our jury so that we can step outside and meet James Vega right before the Reapers attack. And while they're deciding this, Spock watches majestically from a hilltop like Bambi's freaking dad. Yeah, he apparently does this now. <laughs> this is just a thing you do once you come back from the dead. Also, when you come back from the dead, you spend three months hanging out in a terry cloth hooded bathrobe. Look, Vulcans have a very distinct sense of fashion, okay? <laughs> you mean they don't? Anyway, we cut to a scene where Spock is doing three simultaneous trivia games. Because he's a smart guy. And then he gets stumped by the question, how do you feel? And then Spock's mom, who, Spock is half human, by the way. His mom is the human. She comes in to explain human feelings to Spock. Yeah, this is uh, Amanda. You may recognize her as the character who was unceremoniously fridged in the reboot. Oh. She was played by Winona Ryder then. So, did Spock just forget about human feelings... She says the re-education of your brain has been in the Vulcan way. And this is not normal Spock. Normal Spock, like, has a sense of humor and understands subtlety. There were years and years and years of character development. This is our factory reset, Spock. Meanwhile, back in the A-plot, the space tube disables the Saratoga. Turns off the power, basically. And it turns out that it's done that for three other ships. And a bunch of Klingon ships as well. Yeah, they can't get power back at all. They're basically dead in the water. And it's coming to Earth. Dun dun dun. It looks suspiciously 80s out there in San Francisco. Well, yeah. Back on Vulcan, uh, the bounty has been retrofitted to the point where this is a completely different bridge set than in the last movie. Yeah, I thought so. And Savick stops by to be like, By the way, would you like me to wrap up some emotional closure about your son being fridged for your man pain? Yeah, she says, I did not have the opportunity to tell you about your son. David died bravely. You told him this already in the last movie. It's also been three months. When have you not found the time to talk to him about his son dying? But she just now found the time. Also, McCoy has some objections about bringing Spock, the man who was dead three months ago, to just do his old job again. And then they just sort of go, and Savick's gonna stay on Vulcan, I guess. It's fine. She stands on a hilltop majestically next to Amanda. This is fine. Savick's a Starfleet officer, by the way. She was not involved in, like, the stealing of the Enterprise. She has no reason to avoid Earth and therefore court-martial. Yeah, she was there under Starfleet orders. 
She was the only one who was supposed to be there. But no, but no, she's just going to stay here on Vulcan because they don't need her to go get the whales. Meanwhile, the space tube arrives at Earth. And things immediately go chaotic. It starts spaceballing the planet. And vaporizing the oceans. Yeah, there's like wild storms going on. We see the Excelsior in space dock, which has been disabled again. Everything just goes dark, including the space doors. I would love to believe that they just finished repairs in the Excelsior and they were ready to take her out. And then the space tube showed up and disabled her again. And then uh, we cut back to the bounty, which is approaching Earth. And they note that nobody has come to escort them to Earth, which is kind of weird because they're in a Klingon ship. And they're an hour out from Earth. Then they get a distress signal. Which warns them not to approach Earth right now because things are messed up. The probe, they say, is vaporizing our oceans. It almost totally ionized our atmosphere. Avoid Earth at all costs. We can't survive unless we find a way to respond to the probe. Not destroy, respond. This is part of why I say this is the best Star Trek movie ever made. Not the best movie ever made, but the best Star Trek movie ever made. It is so quintessentially Star Trek, and this is one of those moments. This probe is destroying Earth. How do we talk to it and politely ask it to stop? Spock says that his analysis of the situation is that it probably doesn't even know that it's completely ionizing the Earth's atmosphere. It just wants an answer. It's just trying to get attention. And Spock also figures that this probe is probably trying not to talk to humans, especially since the signal is directed at the oceans. And then Uhura modifies the probe noise, accounting for the way that things would sound underwater. And whale song! But whale song! Though it basically just sounds like a theremin. Spock does all, like, the fact-checking and plot progression science stuff, by the way. He then proceeds to go to the database and compare the noise to every other noise that everything in the ocean makes until he discovers that it's a humpback whale, which has been extinct since the 21st century, apparently. Spock says that the probe is seeking out why they stopped getting callbacks from the whales. And, all right... How's that whale song getting out into space? I don't have an answer for you. There's no sound in space. It's it Unless somebody's, like, just transmitting whale radio. Look, this is a movie that just asks you to accept that whales have been talking to aliens this whole time. I mean, I'm okay with that. Spock suggests, well, why don't we go find some humpback whales? But they're not present on any other planet, and Spock is like, no, I mean, we should travel back in time to get some humpback whales. This caused me to fall down a time travel hole on the Star Trek wiki. Because somehow, this is a show that has a mirror universe where everybody is evil. But somehow, time travel always feels weird for Star Trek with me. It just seems like the tastes don't taste great together. But I mean, going back down that hole just made me want to watch that episode of Deep Space Nine where Quark makes Roswell happen all over again. So uh, right after Spock says, let's go back in time and get some whales, we get a prolonged scene of Earth getting hecked up by this probe, uh, including our movie's one Christine Chavel cameo. I get the feeling she was in this more before they cut it down, but she says something along the lines of, we need power to keep the medical facilities online. And then we cut back to Kirk saying, hey, let's convert the cargo bay into an aquarium. They're talking about going into time warp, and Kirk says, we've done it before. I want to point out the one time they did it before that I can think of was by accident. I actually looked this up on a list of all time travel episodes. There were like six in the original series alone and like 15 in next gen. I'm talking specifically about time warp, though, where they slingshot around a gravitational body to go back in time. Oh, right, because they time travel in a lot of different ways. Yeah, the most famous one being City on the Edge of Forever, but uh, that's just like a space wizard portal thing. Oh my god, space wizards. 
Well, it was supposed to be Space Wizards because that was in Harlan Ellison's original script. And then the editors got their hands on it and made it into a portal instead. And Harlan never, ever wrote for Star Trek again because he got mad. What a show this is. Oh, I haven't even told you about Apollo's big green hand. Oh, my God. So Kirk calls Earth and they can't quite make it out, but they do hear that he's babbling about whales and going back in time to save whales. This is a movie that throws, yeah, time travel is a totally achievable thing and anyone can do it at any time within the first 30 minutes of the movie. Yeah, I feel like that undoes a lot of narrative conceits. I mean, by the time Deep Space Nine and Next Gen happens, in Deep Space Nine, your doctor character has actually studied time travel in school. Yeah, yeah. Do they just, do they just not do it? They just don't do it because of the Temporal Prime Directive. They've decided that time travel is, generally speaking, a bad idea. You just have a whole freaking universe full of people who just politely agreed not to use time travel. Yeah, that's Star Trek for you. Oh, Roddenberry. Bless your heart. Anyway, time for some physics nonsense. They slingshot around the sun and go very, very fast. Yeah, in in the Star Trek universe, if you go at, like, warp a billion around the sun really, really fast... You will either go back in time or you will explode. One or the other. And then they slingshot for one side of the sun and you're like, are you really going to make me try and worry that maybe they didn't make it and this is just a very short movie? Symbolism montage. It turns out time travel makes you see some freaky deaky computer generated stuff. Like floating heads. And quotes from later in the movie. And then after the symbolism montage, we're in the 80s. It's the 80s. Do a lot of coke and vote for Ronald Reagan. And Uhura is picking up whale song from space. This is where the movie gets awesome. Immediately the moment she said, Captain, I am receiving whale sound. I just had to pause and throw back my head and start laughing. She's also getting it specifically from San Francisco. There's humpback whales everywhere. But they're gonna go to San Francisco to check out the whales where they're not supposed to be. Also, time travel drained the crystal. Yeah, time travel drained the ship's dilithium crystals, which were apparently substandard Klingon crystals, because, okay. So Spock once again comes up with a plot progression. If we steal some nuclear radiation, we can recrystallize the dilithium. Because they weren't using fusion yet. Okay, physics majors, we know. Don't worry about it, we know. It's okay. It's fine. Everything's fine. So they split up into different away teams, which is my favorite part of any Star Trek story. Uh, Uhura and Chekhov are on nuke duty. Sulu, Scotty, and McCoy are off to get stuff to make a whale tank. And Kirk and Spock are off to find some whales. They are also like, all right, so no doubt this strange 21st century will be mysterious to us. And McCoy just slowly turns and stares at Spock. This guy just came back to life. He doesn't know what an idiom is anymore. We're letting him go. Spock just tears off some of his terry cloth robe and puts a headband around the tops of his ears. Perfect disguise. And there's just like this the shot of Kirk with hilarious adoration in his eyes. Like, yep, that's Spock. Toe to tip, that's a Spock. <laughs> All right. Everybody remember where we parked. That is like my favorite line of this whole movie. Everybody remember where we parked. They cloak the bounty and they land in Golden Gate Park of all places. And they scare the piss out of some garbage collectors. Because nobody's just going to go wanna want to go to the park in the middle of the day, let their dog run around so the dog can then run headfirst into a parked spaceship. An invisible parked spaceship. All right. My body is ready for aggressively 80s goofs. Yay. 
One of the first freaking things that happens is a car almost hits Kirk, and the driver calls him a dumbass. And Kirk responds with, well, double dumbass on you. Oh, this movie is a delight. Yes, this is important to realize in the Gene Roddenberry space future, nobody swears. There's even a scene about it later. So nobody knows how to swear, except Kirk a little bit. Also, they're still using money. We gotta find some. Because Gene Roddenberry future, there's no money. There's no money. Everybody does things out of the goodness of their hearts. And it's a socialist utopia and everyone's like fed and stuff. It's post-scarcity because we have replicators. I'm just going to try very hard not to start yelling about replicators. Just don't. We know, Annie. One thing? One thing about replicators? Why are they stuck on the Fiesta Wear setting? Anyway, Kirk and Spock go off to find some money and he says for the rest of them to wait here. And then he says, look, break up. You look like a cadet review. And then they try to like casually split off into different directions, but they all end up going in the same direction anyway. And Kirk's just kind of like, eh. And goes <laughs> to find some money and it's the best scene. He ends up pawning off some glasses that McCoy gave him for his birthday in the second movie. As a haha, you're old now joke. Yeah. And it's like, it's like a watch shop, but because it's, it's surrounded by clocks, but it's also like a pawnbroker or something. And the guy's like, all right, I'll give you a hundred dollars. And there's this incredible moment where there's this beat while Kirk just looks at him expectantly. And then, is that a lot? And then the antiques guy kind of goes, eh. So he splits up $100 in 80s fun bucks among the crew. Like they're all going off on like a little shopping trip before they have to meet up with the rest of the class. Could believe with Kirk saying that's all there is, so don't splurge. They all split up to go do their respective tasks. Spock says he's going to begin looking for the whales by consulting a transit map. Kirk looks over and sees a bus ad that says, Come see our whales, George and Gracie, at the Cetacean Institute. And can I just add that I love the names George and Gracie for the whales. Is that a reference to something? Yeah, George and Gracie Burns. Comedy icons of the 20th century. Oh, okay. I also really like that we have an actual plot bus in this movie. I love that trope where a bus just drives by conveniently with that thing you need on it. So they get on the bus and then they get off the bus and Spock says, what does it mean exact change? And then the bus drives off. Ah, here we go. So meanwhile, Sulu, McCoy, and hmm, you know, I know that this is Sulu, McCoy, and Scotty, but my head just filled in the rest of the blank after that second S. So I've written this down as Sulu, McCoy, and Sulu. I don't know how that happened. Scotty says they're looking for transparent aluminum for the whale tank. We actually have that. That's actually a real thing. That's sapphire. As in that thing they were going to put on iPhones, but that makes them ridiculously expensive, so they put it on Apple Watches instead, and that's why they're ridiculously expensive. We make that. We make sapphire. But they're looking for, I guess, a different kind of transparent aluminum. Sure, why not? Then we get some blatant Yellow Pages product placement. It takes up an entire building. It's incredible. And then we cut to... One of the best scenes in the movie, which I realize I'm going to say something's the best scene in the movie several times. Honestly, every scene in this movie is the best scene in this movie. But we get to Uhura and Chekhov going up to a cop asking where the nuclear vessels are. And when the cop says absolutely nothing because a Russian man at the tail end of the Red Scare is asking where the nuclear vessels are, they start asking people that go by them on the street for like five minutes. And the cop sits there and stares at them. From behind his aviators and his mustache. It's incredible. They're just like, excuse me, excuse me, do you know where the nuclear vessels are? No, ma'am, 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 I need the nuclear, sir, vessels. And they both think this is just a really great idea. 
Anyway, Kirk and Spock figured out what exact change means. They're on a bus sitting across from a punk who is actually one of the producers. Really? Yeah, that guy's being played by one of the producers, and he's listening to incredibly loud music on his boombox, and Kirk politely asks him to turn it down. The guy turns it up and gives Kirk the finger, so Spock leans across and nerve pinches him. And the entire bus breaks out into applause because the guy falls forward and his head hits the boombox and it turns off. It's incredible. And then Spock asks, so what's with all the swear words? And Kirk is like, well, this is that's just how you speak in this period. Nobody pays attention to you unless you swear every other word, says the screenwriter, echoing some frustrations, possibly. You see it in all the literature of the period, like the collected works of Jacqueline Suzanne. At that moment in the movie, I just screamed, F*** off! I hate Jacqueline Suzanne. <laughs> Kids today, am I right? Ugh. And then after Kirk mentions Jacqueline Suzanne and Harold Robbins, Spock is like, ah! The Giants. And then we head to the Institute. It's an exclusive whale museum. Yeah. And the assistant director of the Maritime Cetacean Institute is apparently leading tour groups. I could never for my life. She said her name once and then no one ever said her name again. And I could not catch it. I just called her Dr. Lady in my notes. It's Jillian Taylor. Jillian, thank you. Yeah, she just leads tour groups, I guess, because she has so many strong feelings about whales. She has a lot of emotions about whales. She's an exclusively whale-motivated woman. Whaleophile. Everything, everything she does is whale-motivated. Also orcas, apparently. She's like, we, we only talk about whales here. And then we walk by some orcas. And we get a whale info dump and a lot of moralizing about whale hunting. And this is accompanied by a really super gory video of whales being harvested. <laughs> Will whales attack you? And she's like, no, of course not. Whales wouldn't do that. And they walk by some more orcas. Pro tip, orcas are nasty and they're also dolphins. And as we all know, dolphins are jackasses. Kirk also is the only one to make the connection about how the greatest threat to whales is man. Kirk's just trying to get on her good side, honestly. I mean, he's just doing his Kirk thing. They go up to the biggest saltwater tank in the world where they've actually got two adult humpbacks named George and Gracie. And we get more moralizing about how intelligent and friendly they are and how the whales are actually going to be shipped out soon because they can't afford to keep feeding these whales. And also, it's like a super bad idea to keep adult whales in captivity. That is a very small tank. I don't think you've got two adult whales in there that could really be happy. No, that is like a fishbowl in there. It's not great. They go down to the lower level of the institute so they can see the whales from underwater and... <laughs> this is my favorite thing. As Jillian is talking... About the whale song, we see Spock has jumped into the whale tank. What could Spock possibly want to do with the whale tank? Spock is mind melting with the whale. Spock is performing a Vulcan mind meld with some f***ing whales this movie. And it cuts back to Kirk having the best facial expressions. <laughs> he cannot believe that Spock has done this. And as, as Jillian's like, we have no idea why they sing, a little old lady is like, well, maybe he's singing to that man. And she turns around and sees Spock in the tank and goes, what the hell? Which is the rational response to seeing a man in your whale tank. And they get kicked out because they were swimming with whales. And Spock is like, well, I wanted to make sure the whales were on board because if we assumed that they were ours to do with as we please, we would be, quote, as guilty as those who caused their extinction. Right in front of, like, the lady who's not from the 23rd century. Good job, Spock. He also won't stop calling Kirk Admiral instead of Jim. And he keeps trying to swear and is incredibly bad at it. That little Vulcan baby, he's the worst. They like you very much, but they are not the hell your whales. 
As they're walking out, Kirk's like, all right, maybe, maybe don't try to swear. You're not, you're not great at it. Also try lying more. Also, the whales have opinions about how their species is being treated by humans. And they're on board with going to the 23rd century to talk to a space tube, I guess. Yeah, they think it's fine. And then we go back to Jillian at the Institute. She's just sort of trying to, like, reassure the whales. Spock said they liked her, by the way. So these are her whales. She likes them. They like her. It's fine. She's baby talking to the whales. I guess they think it's cute. And she's really upset because these whales have to ship out. Then in comes, like, this schlubby guy who seems like he's supposed to be her love interest and his name is Bob. I guess he's her boss-ish. Or something. Anyway, he's like, well, I don't know. We don't know that whales are smart. And she's like, really? Really, Bob? I have to think something can understand death in order to empathize with it, Bob? And then she storms out and it's like, God, Bob, get it together. And then we cut to Chekhov and Uhura on the shore of the Alameda naval base. And they get the location of the nuclear reactor and Chekhov calls in and says, we found the nuclear vessel. And Captain, it is the Enterprise. Lol. I love this movie. Jillian pulls up in her truck next to Kirk and Spock. And uh, asks them if they want to ride. They climb in. Kirk is trying to explain the fact that Spock is quite possibly the weirdest person on Earth right now. And he says, oh, he was part of the free speech movement at Berkeley, he says, talking about it as if it was a very distant historical event. Between you and me, I think he did a little too much LDS. And Jillian's like, LDS, huh? He's like, yeah. Jillian confronts Kirk and Spock about their extremely unsubtle time travel bullshit. And Kirk's like, well, all right, instead of that, why don't you tell me about the whales? And then Spock blurts out, Gracie's pregnant, and Jillian slams on the brakes. And she's also like, all right, you know what? You were talking about whales going extinct in the past tense, and you know that a whale is pregnant. What the hell is happening? And then James T. Let's discuss this over dinner. Kirk is like, hey, let's go to dinner. Do you like Italian? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, I love Italian, and so do you, he says, glaring at Spock. And then Spock turns to Jillian and goes, yes. Let's head to one of the best scenes in the movie. Oh, God, they get to Plexicorp, which makes plexiglass, I guess. And Scotty gets to play the part of the indignant university professor who, you know, they didn't know about his visit. And he's very angry about that. He's traveled millions of miles, thousands of miles, thousands of miles. All the way from Edinburgh. And you didn't realize he was coming? Yeah, McCoy plays his assistant and these guys just roll into this and it's perfect. Yeah, at one point McCoy turns to Scotty and goes, don't bury yourself in the park. We cut briefly back to Sulu who's fangirling all over a Huey. This is like a museum piece to him. And then we cut back to Scotty and McCoy in the Plex Corpse guy's office. And they're like, well, how much plexiglass would we need to hold all this water? And he's like, oh, like six inches thick. Well, uh, we need something that's one inch thick. Here's the formula for transparent aluminum. So Scotty presents this as a hypothetical. Like, what if I told you you can make something one inch thick do the job of something six inches thick? And McCoy's like, why doesn't he show you on the computer? Scotty sits down. Hello, computer. Hello. And doesn't talk back. McCoy just sort of slowly picks up the mouse and hands it to Scotty, who puts it up to his mouth. Hello, computer. Also, it turns out Scotty is a finger typist. He's a hunt and pecker. He's like, a keyboard. How quaint. And he's like, hunt and pecks up this formula. <laughs> In like 20 seconds. How does he do all these keyboard shortcuts still? McCoy takes uh, Scotty off to the side and says, you realize this is like super violating the temporal prime directive, right? And Scotty's like, well, how do we know he didn't invent this stuff? And they just sort of smile at each other and shrug together. 
They also suggest that the guy, if he would make that for them, would be, quote, rich beyond the dreams of avarice. What a great movie. So Jillian drops Spock off in the park and she's like, what, he's just going to stay there? And Kirk's like, yeah, it's his way. Anyway, let's go to dinner. Dinner at the most 80s looking diner location. This is apparently an Italian restaurant. Despite looking like what you'd find serving apple pie with cheese on top. It's a pizzeria. And Kirk uh, makes a face at his beer because he's used to drinking either like synthahol or like super illegal Romulan ale. This is a Gene Roddenberry thing, synthahol. And then Kirk basically tries to seduce Jillian into giving him the whales. This is Kirk as he's meant to be. And she's having none of it, especially when he gets a call on his communicator in the middle of dinner and actually takes it. She's like, are you a doctor? You have a beeper. And doesn't try to hide anything. And she's like, all right, I'm going to call you out in your obvious time travel bullcrap. Yeah, she says, don't tell me you're from outer space. And Kirk's like, no, I'm from Iowa, but I work in outer space. Which is the most Star Trek response. It is. I love it. So he just he just tells her the truth. We want to take the whales into the future. And Jillian doesn't quite buy it, but she does tell him that the whales are getting shipped out tomorrow. He could prove this in so many ways right now that he chooses not to. No, he just figures his charm will get her to believe him. Or at least get her to believe him enough that she'll tell him when the whales are shipping out. Which she does. And then Kirk, like, what? They're leaving tomorrow. We have to go now. <laughs> they leave and the waiter's like with the check says, who gets the bad news? Jillian turns to Kirk and says, don't tell me. They don't use money in the 23rd century. And Kirk's like, well, they don't. Meanwhile, Uhur and Chekhov have smuggled themselves aboard the old Enterprise, the uh, the nuclear vessel. There's a bad guy snipping pup on the USS Enterprise. Don't pet this pup. He's on the job. And we just get a scene of them attaching the thing to the reactor and then just settling in for the long haul because they have no idea how long this is going to take. And then Jillian drops Kirk off at the park and she's like, really? This is your last chance to actually, like, make me believe you. And he's just like, look, just give me your whales. And it looks like for a moment that they're at some secret makeout spot and they're sitting there. And instead of being romantic, he just kind of leans forward and goes, I need your whales. James T. Kirk, everybody. King of romance. And he's like, just come back here for me if you decide to give me your whales. She's like, right here in the middle of the park. And he's like, yes. And then she turns to drive off and she sees a flash of light and turns and suddenly Kirk's gone. And then we have like a brief scene with Kirk, Spock, and a half-constructed fish tank where it's like, are we going to get whales? I don't know. I don't know if we're going to get whales. I would like to get whales, but I don't know if we get whales. And then we cut back to Uhura and Chekhov who are still collecting particles. They finally absorb enough and they try for a beam up, but there's a whole bunch of radiation or something, something. So Uhura gets beamed up, but Chekhov doesn't. He gets discovered by people. So the Russian guy gets discovered by a bunch of military types at the tail end of the Red Scare here. And he's right next to the nuclear reactor. Doing something to the nuclear reactor. So, of course, everybody's immediately suspicious. So they try to interrogate him. He's got his ID there from Starfleet. He's got his phaser and his communicator. And they're like, tell us who you are. And he does. He super tells them who he is. One guy turns to the other guy and he's like, what is this? And the guy goes, Aroski. And he's like, I know that. And Chekhov takes that momentary distraction, grabs his phaser and tries to stun them. Uh, it doesn't work again because of the radiation for some reason. Yeah, you know, something something radiation. And so uh, he just stands there for a moment and then turns and starts sprinting away. He books it. He makes a daring little escape. He's so adorable. And he runs across the deck of the Enterprise, tries to take a shortcut, falls 10 feet, and is immediately completely incapacitated. Good job. 
we cut briefly back to uh, Kirk snapping at Scotty over the comm about uh, needing the dilithium crystals recrystallized super quick. And then uh, Scotty's like, well, he's in a bit of a snit, isn't he? Spock's like, he is a man of deep feelings. And Scotty, who is the best, is like, ah, what else is new? So the next morning, Jillian arrives at the Whale Institute. It turns out the whales are already gone. Bob arrives and says, we we tanked them last night. It was going to be a media circus. We thought it would be easier on your feelings if you didn't get a chance to say goodbye to them. And she just smacks him for telling her how she should feel. Get it together, Bob! And then we get a scene of Sulu who gets to fly a Huey. And there's this great sight gag where he leans over, hits a button, and the windshield wipers go off. He's having a great day. He's delivering the transparent aluminum to the park. And Jillian arrives at the park just as he's lowering it into the still-cloaked spaceship. So there's just half of a man sticking out of midair. Yeah, so he's like, Captain, we've got some problems. <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, Jillian walks face first into a cloaked spaceship. Oh, whoever thought that could happen? And then they beam her aboard and she gives like this troll two level performance as she's being beamed aboard. It's not great. I mean, once she gets there, she takes this all pretty well. I mean, all things considered. Especially since she's beaming aboard the shittiest spaceship. Klingon birds of prey are not great. Uh-uh, it's a retrofitted piece of crap. And, but, of course, because Jillian is entirely motivated by whales, she's like, none of this matters. Admiral, the whales have been taken. We have to go get the whales, and Kirk points out, we can't leave and go get the whales. We have to get Chekhov first. Yeah, Uhura figures out that Chekhov has been taken by the military men to the hospital for emergency surgery, and they don't expect he'll survive. He fell ten feet. McCoy is like, we can't leave Chekhov in the hands of 20th century medicine. So uh, Jillian and Kirk and uh, McCoy all just go to this hospital and go charging through it trying to find Chekhov, which consists of them having to disguise themselves as doctors and scrubs. While they're doing that, Bones finds a woman in the hallway who's in kidney dialysis. And he's like, what is this, the Dark Ages? And he gives her a pill. McCoy is just so pissed throughout this. It's great. He keeps stopping and commenting on everything. He's like, this is awful. What are we doing? He gets angrier and angrier. Angry McCoy is the best McCoy. So eventually they find Chekhov and they charge in there and McCoy and the doctor basically just start yelling random terms at each other until McCoy is finally like, what are you doing? Drilling a hole in his skull is not the way to do this. It's like the goddamn Spanish Inquisition. And then Kirk gently encourages the surgeons to leave. With a phaser. So uh, they get into a closet. He basically melts the lock so they can't get out. McCoy, meanwhile, starts doing future surgery. And then he just puts a little a little thing on Chekhov's head and it beeps and beeps and beeps. And then Chekhov wakes up and it's fine. And they're like, okay, well, let's start pushing everybody out of here. And basically, uh, Benny Hill music starts. It's not actually the Benny Hill theme, but it should be. We get a great hospital chase scene. I saw the chase scene in Into Darkness dubbed with this music, and it made the movie like a thousand times better. The old lady who McCoy earlier gave the pill to is being wheeled past by these other doctors. and She keeps shouting, the doctor gave me a pill and I grew a new kidney. And one of them mutters like it's fully functional. Anyway, they get beamed out of the hospital. It's time to go get the whales, but Jillian isn't supposed to come along. Because their next stop is the 23rd century. So Kirk says goodbye to her and then he's like, beam me up, Scotty. And of course, Jillian immediately latches on to him. Like, why weren't you expecting that? Jillian hijacks this beam for one aboard. It's like, no, dude, I've seen these episodes. This is the kind of shit that gets you evil clones, two evil clones, and a trip to the mirror universe. Transporter accidents are responsible for most of the wacky hijinks that happen in Star Trek. 
When it's not the holodeck malfunctioning. It is shockingly easy to f*** up a transporter. And then we get this great scene where Kirk's saying, uh, how long until we can leave Spock? And Spock responds with, one damn minute, Admiral. <laughs> Sulu is at the helm and he's like, I'm trying to remember how this thing works. I got used to it, Huey. Sulu, you nerd. And it also turns out as they're heading towards Alaska, they have to beam aboard 400 tons of whales plus water. The Earth is going to be down like 400 tons of water for the next several hundred years. I love that. They find the whales, but oh no, a whaling ship is after them. All right, look, these whales got there like a couple of hours ago, basically. They must have dumped those whales off right in front of a whaling ship. I mean, you just imagine like they see this whaling ship and it's like it's just decorated with whale bones across. There's tanks that just have like precious ambergris, whale eyes, blubber, just Tanks and takes and takes full of it, clearly labeled. The, the ship is like stamped with all the whales they've killed. And the Institute people are like, yeah, this seems fine. And then we get an unnecessary tension sequence. Oh my gosh. As the ship closes in on the whales and both of them are going extremely slowly. One thing I love is that the whaling ship shoots the harpoon and it tonks off the side of the ship. And then the bounty decloaks. And it's kind of the best thing. And then Scotty beams aboard some f***ing whales. And then says, Admiral, there be whales here. Best line in the movie. That's like hashtag iconic. Then they go to warp speed while they're still inside the Earth's atmosphere. That seems like a bad idea. That is a super bad idea. But anyway, we're not going to talk about that because it's time to quote D.H. Lawrence. Kirk waxes poetic about how important it is to save the whales. You know, it's ironic. When man was killing these creatures... They were destroying their own future. Are you for real, Kirk? Like, you think that was the moment when Jillian just looked down and said, I've made a huge mistake. And then it's time to go back to the future. And they're not sure they're going to make it. Kirk is like, well, there's like a 50-50 chance we'll make it to the future. The other 50 is that we'll explode. And uh, we don't get a freaky deaky time trip this time, which I'm a little disappointed in. Now, they only had the budget to do that sequence once. Yeah, so we get the same shot of them uh, circling around the sun. And they've arrived exactly when they left. Right in front of the space tube. And of course, that means that their power goes out. So they crash into Earth right in the San Francisco Bay. They nearly collide with the Golden Gate Bridge. Appropriate. So the ship's going down. Everybody's evacuating. The whale tank is underwater. So Kirk swims down to release them while the rest of the crew evacuates. I'm surprised that this is, this hatch wasn't something that you have to spin to the side and then push back in, because that's what all override hatches in Star Trek are. I mean, you're not wrong. And then the whales get out, and they start singing. And we have an incredibly long sequence where a whale talks to a space tube. It's like Wookiee Life Day all over again. It's like watching the Star Wars Holiday Special, where you just have a whole bunch of Wookiees that are cooing at each other and gurgling at each other, and you have no idea what they're saying, but you're expected to just watch this conversation happen anyway. Except it's this with a whale and a space probe. It seems to work, because we've got the whole crew sitting on the edge of their bounty, and they're all soaking wet, and the storm's tossing and turning, but slowly it stops, and, and the sunlight comes out as the probe turns and starts pulling away. It's like, oh, all right, cool. Later then. Peace out. Yay, the probe is gone. Time for some stock footage of whales. And everybody leaps into the water, giggling and laughing and playing in it near the whales because you don't want to play with a whale. I guess the power just comes back on as the probe goes by it again. It's fine. 
It's time to desperately pretend that whale footage in the same place as the crew in this tank outside the ship set. Ah, they look like they're having fun, though. Yeah, yeah, they're hurling each other into the water. It's great. Spock gets dunked. It's awesome. Spock has been needing a good dunking for a while. And now a trial scene. First, they're like, Spock, you don't have to be here. And he's like, no, I will be here with my crew. My friends, I learned a lesson somehow. I have learned how friendship works. I guess. And then it basically boils down to, so like you stole and then blew up a spaceship and also disobeyed orders and did a lot of other stuff that's not allowed, but also you saved the planet. So here's a slap on the wrist demotion and a new spaceship. Bye. That's exactly what happens. At one point, the Federation president says you have saved this planet from its own short-sightedness and we are forever in your debt. Nobody could have possibly foreseen this. No, in fact... You're talking about hunting a species to extinction that won't come back to bite you in the ass for 300 years. I'm just looking forward to the dodo aliens that show up and ruin everything. Oh shit, just an endless supply of aliens that were really, really attached to this one species. What about the giant sloths? What about the giant sloths? And then there's also (laughs) this great scene where you think there's going to be some kind of like a romantic conclusion with Jillian and Kirk. But Jillian's like, no, I'm off to have adventures in the space future. Bye. And she's never seen again. She's basically like, nope, I'm on a science vessel. And then she basically says to him, don't call me. I'll call you. And then gives him a little kiss on the cheek. It's actually really great. It's a good resolution for Jillian, who's entirely motivated by whales. And Kirk is like, aw, I didn't even get a kiss scene. Meanwhile, Spock Dad is here with Spock. And Spock is like, Spock Dad, tell Spock Mom, I feel fine. I'm not crying, you're crying. And also Spock Dad apologizes for not wanting Spock to be in Starfleet because he has made good friends and they are good people and he's doing good. I love you, Spock son. I love you too, Spock Dad. Except for Vulcans, so we don't say those things. And now it's time to find out what ship they're getting. There's a really great bit where McCoy is like, oh, we're getting a freighter. We're totally getting a freighter. And Sue's like, I wouldn't mind the Excelsior. And like two movies later, he's the captain of the Excelsior. Oh, that's spectacular. And then we get to the Excelsior, and then we pan over the Excelsior, and it's the Enterprise A! At last, my ship, whom I love like a woman. And then they take the ship out as like, how about a whole bunch of new adventures with some very mediocre movies? Off to Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, which is really bad. And then Kirk says, my friends, we've come home. And then I cried a little bit more, and don't worry about it. Aww, Kit, you're a huge f***ing nerd. I love it. So that's the end of Star Trek IV Save the Whales. Kit, now that we've sort of touched upon exactly what happens in here, why don't you, uh, why don't you lead us into this analysis? I consider this the most Star Trek of the Star Trek movies, because this is like perfectly intellectually and emotionally in line with what we expect from the series. The premise of the movie is, hey, this probe is destroying Earth. Let's politely ask it to stop. Oh, no, we have to go back in time and get some whales to talk to the probe. And then from like the point they get back to the 80s, it's just a Planet of the Hats episode. It's one of those episodes where they go down to the Mafia planet or whatever after the disaster of the first Star Trek movie and Star Trek. Trek 2 Wrath of Khan, which was really, really good, but also like really, really dark and largely motivated by violence and revenge. And after Search for Spock, which was like bad. This was the first Star Trek movie that actually felt like it was Star Trek. I mean, what I found interesting about it was that reading the synopsis of the first one, it seems like this is sort of the same idea, but actually executed better of we need to find a nonviolent solution to this thing that we don't understand. Yeah, well, the first one was... It was basically a recycled plot from the TV series. They did that already. 
They just decided to make a two-hour feature out of it. But uh, I also want to point out that I've just now seen the new Star Trek movie, Star Trek Beyond, and I can say that I love it in much the same way that I love this movie. It is very Star Trek. It is made by people who understand what Star Trek is supposed to be. Oh, nice. What I also really liked about watching this after, like, the same day I watched Search for Spock, I liked that in Search for Spock, it felt a lot like the Klingons were just sort of there to provide a face for an antagonist because they couldn't quite make the man versus nature thing, man versus environment plot work in a way that they thought was satisfying. Whereas this one very much is sort of a man versus environment, if you will, in a matter of we're just trying to save whales and there's a lot of stuff that's standing in our way, but there's not really an antagonist here. There are hurdles, but no one you can point at and blame. Which is very Star Trek as well. It's just how can we work together to solve this problem? That is the core of Star Trek. I really enjoyed watching these movies. I really, really liked Star Trek 4. And I definitely see where you're coming from. It definitely feels like a Gene Roddenberry sort of story to me. I feel like it's really hard, especially with movies, to make the Gene Roddenberry ideal work. Which is that, generally speaking, things are fine. It's hard to find conflict in that that quickly appeases sort of a movie-going crowd. It's definitely something that I think works a lot better for television because you can expect different things from television. In television, you just get to have 42 minutes of how do we solve the way that the warp core has f***ed up this week. Let's have a big conversation about whether or not Data can be considered alive. Answer, yes. Data is my son, my precious son. I mean, you can have these sorts of conversations in television, but in movies, we always expect something to be, if not flashier, then more high stakes, more exciting. One thing that I've heard said before by, I believe, Mark Rosewater, who works in Magic the Gathering, but he worked on screenwriting for a long time, is that television evolved more out of the radio tradition. You should be able to hear an episode of television and get a better idea of what's happening in it, but movies are more theater, they're more visual. You can watch a movie with the sound off and still get a gist of it. And Star Trek is definitely something that would work better as a radio play. So I guess what it comes down to is that this is the most Gene Roddenberry, and whether or not you consider that to be true Star Trek, I think your mileage varies on that, but Kit at least will fight you over it. I will fight you over the fact that this is the best Star Trek movie ever made. There be whales. What a great movie. What a great fun movie this was. Well, that'll do it for us here on I Will Fight You for this episode. You can find us every week over at the Gem Jam, where we do an episode episode recap of the 1980s cartoon Gem and the Holograms. We also talk about the comic over there. If you would like to check out our Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash the Gem Jam. I Will Fight You is brought to you by Patreon, so thank you to everybody who has given us a couple of dollars to scream about things in your ears on the internet. It's been great so far. Next episode, we will be covering our next Stone Cold fact, which is Everyone writes Mary Sue's. I'm very excited. We've we've talked a little bit about some of our favorite Mary Sue's that we've created over the years. You'll get to meet them. We might even build a Mary Sue. I'm very excited to build a Mary Sue with you guys. We've got questionnaires. We're ready. I'm ready for this. So until next time, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And we have fought you.